This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Anchor is a Spotify-owned company that makes it easy for people to get into podcasting. It's an all-in-one, totally free platform where you can record a podcast, host it, distribute it, measure your performance analytics, and find sponsors. It all works in your web browser or through Anchor's mobile app. Give Anchor a try for free at anchor.fm slash kickassnews. That's anchor.fm slash kickassnews. And now, on with the show. I think, it, I think it's important for you all to be aware uh, that it's been in the press all over the country that the children who were previously kept with their families under a new policy just implemented by the Attorney General are being separated from their families and warehoused here. And uh, the, the Attorney General's team and the Office of Refugee Settlement, they don't want anyone to know about what's going on behind these doors. Uh, this is why I tried to arrange a meeting to come, and I really appreciated it when I came and called the number, and they said, yes, very happy to have a supervisor come out and talk to you. So I'm a little disappointed now that we're not getting that uh, dialogue, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll try again in other channels. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was a video of U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley showing up at the border in 2018 and demanding to see what was going on behind closed doors that triggered worldwide outrage at the forced separation of children from their parents. Even Senator Merkley said he couldn't believe his eyes. Contrary to the official stories and soothing videos, he found mothers and children, newborn babies and infants, stranded for days on border bridges in blistering heat or locked up in ice-cold holding pens. There were nearly 1,500 boys jammed into a former Walmart, a child tent prison in the desert with almost 3,000 boys and girls, and children struggling to survive in gang-filled Mexican border towns after they were blocked from seeking asylum in the United States. Now he writes about what he witnessed and offers some solutions in his new book titled America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families. And today he joins me on the podcast to recall his first trip to inspect the conditions for families being held by the CPB in Brownsville, Texas, and the absurd reasons he was given for being denied entry to a shelter for migrant children. He says over a year later, there are still families who haven't been reunited, and that family separations weren't the result of mere bureaucratic strain, but a deliberate effort by the Trump administration to deter immigrants by inflicting maximum pain. He makes the case that Trump's zero-tolerance policy toward illegal immigration is violating both the U.S. and international laws and reveals what happened when he confronted his old Senate colleague and then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions about the problem. He discusses his travel through war-torn Central America in the 80s and actually claims that countries like Nicaragua, Guatemala, and El Salvador are much worse off today. Plus, he shares a few of the heartbreaking stories that he's heard from the refugees who've risked everything to escape the worst imaginable kind of evil at the hands of gangs and cartels in their home countries. Coming up with Senator Jeff Merkley in just a moment. Jeff Merkley is a senator from Oregon, serving in the U.S. Senate since 2009. 
He's been a leader on issues of immigration and humane treatment of migrants and refugees. And you might even remember him from a viral video of him attempting to inspect a notorious detention center for migrant children in Texas in 2018. Now he writes about it in a new book titled America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families. Senator Merkley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ben. Good to be with you. Well, Senator, immigration has been one of your top priorities in the Senate, and you were one of the first people to call attention to the flaws in the Trump administration's so-called zero-tolerance policy to undocumented immigrants. When you first heard then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions announce this policy, did you really believe that he was serious about things like family separations and child detention centers, or did you sort of assume that this was maybe just another bluff by the president or a negotiating tactic? I did not think any administration would actually deliberately traumatize children. I read his speech and I thought, oh, zero tolerance. That sounds like a tough on crime, a good Republican talking point six months out from the election. And as I read the details, I said to my team, surely they can't be doing this because no American would do this to children. And that has ripped them out of their parents' arms. Mm -hmm. And one of my team members said, you know, there's one way to find out, get down to the border. And I said, you're right. And I went that Sunday. And that's when I discovered the, the children were being ripped out of their parents' arms, were being sorted into cages. And um, soon the whole entire nation knew about it shortly thereafter. Uh, yeah, you got a lot of attention for, I think it was a Facebook Live video of you going to inspect one of these so-called shelters for migrant children in what was an abandoned Walmart store, I think, in Texas. What happened when you showed up at Casa Padre, I believe it's called? Yes. I had just left the facility, this, the, uh, the Customs and Border Protection facility uh, that had the cages and, and uh, went an hour up the road to Brownsville because uh, immigration advocates had said, we have heard hundreds of boys are being stuffed into this former Walmart up there under this policy. And so I had, my team had asked for permission to visit but had been turned down. And I said, well, let's go anyway. I'll knock on the door. If it's really a facility that has hundreds of people, surely there's a supervisor who can show me around. Uh, after all, uh, the Senate and, and House are supposed to exercise uh, oversight of, of, of the executive branch. And so I uh, uh, drove up the road and uh, knocked on the door and was told the supervisor would come out and talk to me. But uh, instead, the supervisor called the, the, the police uh, left me out there about half an hour uh, under the supposition that I would be allowed to come in, but but that was not the case. And it really said to America, it was, it was a blessing in a way, because it said to America, the administration does not want you to know what they're doing to migrant kids. Mm -hmm. They're hiding it. They, they are, they, it's not a good thing when, when you're hiding what you're doing to children. So that, I think a couple million people watched that, that uh, video uh, and, and made people very suspicious as they should be of, of the policy being done by, by, by the Trump administration. And what were the reasons that they gave you for denying entry? Well, it was all bureaucracy. They were saying, well, you have to give two weeks notice. We have a waiver program, but we don't want to give you a waiver, so we won't. But it boiled down to this. They did not want members of Congress to see what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Because of the publicity, they then had to. Ten days later, they let in uh, the press. Fourteen days later, on Father's Day, ironically, given the name of the place is Casa Padre, uh, House of the Father, 
Uh, they uh, did allow, I took a whole congressional delegation down two weeks later. And what we found is there weren't hundreds of, of boys as I had heard. I'd heard maybe an upwards of a thousand boys in there. There were 1,500 boys stuffed into that wow. facility. And just think about, they have, they, you know, they bragged about their, their one soccer field outside. Can, how long does it take 1,500 boys to share a soccer field? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, these mega facilities uh, are outrageous. Children can't be attended to, and they had not provided mental health counselors. In fact, they told me they were, were short 90 counselors. Mm. And it shows that very little planning went into zero tolerance. And unfortunately, this nonprofit, Southwest Key, was essentially a partner in the program, getting paid huge sums of money to do this and not objecting at all to the underlying dark and evil nature of what was occurring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it just occurred to me that uh, one of the more absurd aspects of this was at some point they put out a statement saying that they initially had denied you entry, a U.S. senator, (laughs) because uh, they were trying to protect the safety and dignity of the children (laughs) as if you were somehow. (laughs) That's exactly what they said. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. You know, and and what I have seen is um, everything they're doing that is hurting kids they're, they defend publicly by saying they're protecting kids. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they don't want to own up uh, to the underlying theme, although the theme, that is uh, uh, treat children in this fashion in order to deter immigration, has been sp- spoken to explicitly uh, both by former uh, Attorney General Sessions, by a former head of uh, Homeland Security, um, and that is uh, John Kelly, uh, who then became the chief of staff. Uh, so several members of the administration did lay it out very, very clearly. In fact, the first conversation about it was just 13 days after Trump took office. Hmm. You know, I confess that I have been kind of working under the assumption that these separations are the result of just bureaucratic red tape, the usual lack of resources or space, general disorganization. But you say in the book, the Trump administration was using family separations very deliberately. What was the purpose of that? Absolutely. They laid out, and John Kelly was very upfront about this when he was uh, questioned uh, just, um, it was uh, March of 2017. He said, yes, we are considering uh, taking the children away from the parents, and we're doing it to deter immigration. Mm-hmm. So traumatized children deter immigration. And this came up time and time again. You see those two things connected. Uh, it's why, well, think of it this way. Uh, the president said, come to the ports of entry, and we just don't want you crossing between ports of entry right. because that would be illegal versus legal. But then they come to the port of entry, and they are blockaded from entering the United States as a with refugee status. I watched three uh, CBP, Customs and Border Protection, uh, guards on the bridge at the line between the two countries blocking anyone from coming a- across who did not have a passport or a visa, that is a refugee. Mm-hmm. I met a, a woman and her her 56-day-old child, Andrea, who had been refused entry across the bridge three times. In desperation, she then figured out a way to come across and her strategy was to come on the car bridge and borrow a squeegee and wash windows for tips until she was in the United States of America because she was blocked. And this has happened to now tens of thousands of people. 
If you are stranded across the border with no family, no funds, you are prey to the, the gangs across the border, to all, all kinds of exploitation, uh, rape, theft, assault, uh, kidnapping, and sometimes uh, uh, ransoms being demanded of your contacts in the United States. So people decide, well, the safest thing is then I can't cross at a port of entry. I'll cross between a port of entry. That's exactly what happened to the father and daughter whose picture will be forever seared in our mind. Uh, Oscar and Valeria, who died trying to swim the river. They had mm -hmm. come to the port of entry and been blockaded uh, wow. by the administration. Uh, yeah, you say that the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol is engaging in what you call a process of metering to slow down the flow of immigration. What do you mean by metering? How does that work? So under the Refugee Convention, you're supposed to admit people to come to your border and ask for refugee right. status. It's hard to prove refugee status. It's hard to win an asylum hearing but you deserve to be treated with respect and dignity until the conclusion of that, that process. But the administration is essentially saying, you know what? Today we only want to take five people. Maybe we want to take 10 people. So if there's 80 who have come to the border, well, the other 75 will have to take a number and wait in Mexico. This is hugely problematic uh, because they have no way to survive across the border uh, they're extremely vulnerable. I went to seven shelters in Tijuana that are trying to give people a safe retreat from the street. I saw one room about the size of a conference room, had 17 families living in it. Oh. Each, each, there were four bunk beds for a total of uh, eight beds. Uh, there were another nine mattresses on the floor. It was every, every mattress was a family. Uh, just some charitable individual had worked to set up this shelter so that people would not be exploited on the street, but it's extremely dangerous. And you can't even figure out the communication for when you might your number might be called, and that numbering system is often another form of exploitation, being charged yeah. money, black market, or to get your name in front of the list or your name from being taken off the list, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's horrific. Yeah, you say that before they can apply for asylum in the U.S., they have to get registered in something called the book on the Mexico side of the border at the ports of entry. What is the book and who actually operates it? So the United States uh, wanted to have this metering process. But then the question is, well, so if you're going to take 10 people the next day, which 10 will you take? They did not want to, you know, the Trump administration did not want to take responsibility uh, for this, uh, this system. So at different ports, it's run in different ways. In some places, it's run by drug cartel. In other places, it's wow. run by an informal association uh, or so-called informal association of refugees. But often behind that is you know, the Mexican police. Hmm. Uh, so they hire a group of refugees because neither the Mexican government nor the United States government wants to take responsibility. Yeah. So there in Tijuana, I went early in the morning. They come out, uh, a couple people come out with this big ledger. They set it on a, a table under maybe an eight foot by eight foot canopy. And they start reading names depending on the number of slots the U.S. has said that they have for that day. The waiting list was very long, I think about six weeks long when I was there, and now I believe it's much longer uh, for people. And can you imagine if your child was st stuck across the border without funds for six weeks in Tijuana, massive sex industry, lots mm -hmm. of street gang crime. I mean, you would 
be in a big panic, and these families are in a big panic. Yeah, and it's amazing that this thing called the book is, in some cases, being run by the very people that Donald Trump claims that he's trying to block from getting into the country, Mexican gangs and, and drug cartels. That's right. Wow. You already mentioned America is also a signatory to the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which establishes the right to seek asylum from persecution. Do you feel that this policy actually violates international law? Yes, it does. It does. I mean, the whole point of the Refugee Convention, which we signed in 51, and the Declaration of Human Rights, was that when someone is afflicted and knocks on your door, you open your door, uh, and it doesn't mean that, that they win asylum because they have a very high responsibility to demonstrate a credible fear of return, but it does mean you don't leave them in a vulnerable situation. And mm -hmm. what the Trump administration do, is doing is, is leaving these children and refugee families in a very vulnerable situation. Trump rarely comes up with these things on his own. There's usually someone in his circle who puts a bug in his ear. Uh, who do you suppose in his inner circle bears the most responsibility for these harsh anti-immigration policies? It's Stephen Miller. Really? There are a series of think tanks that are feeding ideas. Uh, think about it this way. In general, when an election is coming up, uh, Democrats run on hope, the hope that we can have better programs on health care, housing, education, and jobs. And Republicans run on fear. They run on the Ebola epidemic. They run on ISIS. Uh, they, they run on um, a horde of immigrants coming across the border. Uh, they run on uh, people being assaulted in a blind alley by someone with a gun. Uh, the, this is crudely because in general, the electorate believes Republicans uh, pay more attention to public safety and Democrats pay more attention to family welfare. So that's the general dynamic. Back in the middle of last year, in 2018, the Republicans were going through the list of things that they could use as a fear factor in the 2018 campaign. Well, Ebola wouldn't work because it was no longer a scary international threat, even though there was an outbreak in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But that was very, very remote, and far away, and not much attention was paid to it. Uh, well, ISIS wouldn't work because uh, ISIS had pretty much been vanquished from uh, its previous extensive territory. And, oh, well, immigration, let's crank that into the fear factor for, for the election. And so rather than the president saying, we have a broken system, Let's go back to the bipartisan deal of, of 2013 when D's and R's in the Senate passed a bill together, a supermajority, uh, to tra take on security at the border, security uh, with visas, use those visas in, in, the, in a fashion to help address challenges in, in, the, in, the, in the marketplace, create a path for citizenship for folks who had come before the legislation was, was uh, put in place, uh, make validation at, at points of employment. In other words, a whole comprehensive reform. Instead of that, the president is accentuating uh, the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so here, here we are. I, I mean, I have to assume that you must find it somewhat fundamentally absurd, the president's line when he says that his zero tolerance policy is actually a humane policy and it's about actually protecting migrant families from cartels and drug lords and so forth. Yes, and the, the, the president and his team said this to me when I talked to him about it. We are simply protecting children because if we treat the children like this when they come, others will be 
deterred from coming, they'll be spared a difficult trip. Well, realize folks are coming because they're under horrific circumstances. They don't know exactly what's going to happen when they get to the border. But what they do know, if they don't leave by Friday, some member of their family is going to be shot because they couldn't pay the extortion payment or they couldn't repay the loan taken from a drug cartel or because the, the local gang is wants your daughter as a sex slave and if you don't turn her over, either she or you or another family member is going to be killed. I mean, there are very powerful forces at yeah. work here, many of which we're tied into. And when I say that, the drug cartels that have moved into the Northern Triangle of Guatemala, Salvador, and Honduras, their money comes from selling drugs in the United States. The guns come from being smuggled from the United States. And even the street-level gang structure comes from the, the, those we deported in the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're, this isn't, didn't just happen. Kind of the United States is tied to the fact that these forces have overwhelmed the traditional institutions in those three countries. Yeah, and you have particular experience in that region going way back to when you were pretty young in the 80s. Uh, you also did humanitarian work in Mexico and Ghana, and I know you worked for the World Bank early on. Do you think that your experience dealing with extreme poverty and regions in crisis makes you particularly empathetic to the plight of Central American refugees? Well, it, it does mean I have some perspective on the way it was decades ago and how it has, has changed. And uh, so the institutions that worked better are working more poorly. I mean, it's, listen, Central America was in chaos even then. Honduras was right. poor but stable. El Salvador was in the middle in the 1980s of, of a violent civil war. Guatemala was engaged in a dirty war of, of kind of the cities against the rural areas in which uh, military forces were going village to village and killing young men. Uh, but what we have now uh, are are forces that are even worse, <laughs> even more challenging than that challenging situation. Yeah, that's saying a uh, lot. Decades ago, it 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 really is. And you have you have uh, other factors. You have three years. There's been a lot of drought in Central America. Uh, it may well be tied to to climate chaos from carbon pollution as the planet weather patterns are changing. That means a lot of rural families, the corn harvest has failed or the coffee harvest has failed. That creates additional pressure. You have far more young people becoming of working age than there are jobs for for them. Uh, one calculation had that at about a 17 to 1 ratio. Um, and so you, you have a tremendous uh, number of pressures. And when you first visited that region in the 80s, these countries, as you already mentioned, were embroiled in all kinds of political turmoil. Uh, today, they're all democratic republics, yet they appear to be no better off. Some might even say they're closer to failed states now than they were when you first went there. What went wrong? What we have really seen is the traditional institutions have collapsed. The drug cartels have two strategies. One is money to bribe people with, and the other is violence to threaten people mm -hmm. with. And so this has overwhelmed the, the traditional institutions. If, if someone is told, you work with us and we will pay you, if you don't, we will kill you or kill your family member or gang rape your daughter, it's a pretty powerful factor for you to either be mm -hmm. silent or, or cooperate. Wow. Uh, there is one town in El Salvador 
that I kept asking in each country as I met with the, the presidents and the social groups and the, the newspapers, I kept asking, is, has any village been able to resist this gang culture? Is there an example of, of how it could be different? And only in El Salvador was one town mentioned. And uh, I, I, I talk about that town in, in my book. Uh, and it has a mayor who put on a bulletproof vest and, and got a, a machine gun and got in a Jeep and started recruiting town members uh, to immediately drive out uh, either of the, the major gangs out of the city. And uh, it has it means that that town has managed to keep the gang members out. But it's an intense effort by a mayor who risked his life and then recruited everyone to, to back him up. Interesting. And that's a little bit of a thin line because, you know, it's easy for him to go from that to being something like a Duterte in the Philippines. I mean, some might even, I suppose, call him a vigilante. Yeah, he's proud of the fact he's never fired his his gun, uh, and he knows that there's no other institution that's going to to mm-hmm. stand up. They haven't gotten into a, they haven't shot people, so they're they're certainly not Duterte in the Philippines. <laughs> uh, they simply have a system of everyone in the town working together to say you're not welcome here, mm-hmm. and um, the the it the, it it has worked. I don't know if it's a model that other towns could pull off. Uh, but it shows you how hard it is to do. Interesting. So it's not a top-down approach. It's kind of getting the whole community involved. Yes, that's, that's correct. So lots of people volunteer to go with him. Uh, he has several hundred people who call uh, immediately to say if any gang members have shown up in town. So they, everyone tells their family members they're not welcome if they're gang members, etc. And they, they, they report that it's incredibly different because you can play on the street without worry about bullets being fired. You can run a small business without extortion. We're not, and we're not talking about extortion in which someone says, if you don't pay us, we'll put a brick through your window. This is, you don't pay us, we will kill you on Friday. Wow. Or we'll kill your family member. Or we will gang rape your daughter. And I mean, in other words, these are very forceful, violent, high-end threats yeah. that are taken as real because they are real. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Senator Jeff Merkley when we come back in just a minute. Hey, folks, I have to talk to you about Ancestry DNA. There's no more exciting story than the story of you, and Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. They've combined DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started, using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestors' journeys over time, following how and why your family moved from place to place. And to amplify your results, you can start a free trial on Ancestry and build a tree so your ancestors become more than just a name. Only Ancestry can tell such a rich story with unique features that give a more complete picture about a person. My wife was the first person in our family to do an Ancestry DNA, She'd always heard from her relatives that her family was Scottish, so you can imagine her surprise when her ancestry DNA results came back and it turned out she wasn't Scottish at all. She was Irish. After that, I just had to give ancestry a try for myself and see what's in my own family tree. 
Now, I had always been told that I had a lot of German in me and some English. That part turned out to be true. But what I didn't know until I tried an Ancestry DNA kit is that I'm also 6% Norwegian, 2% European Jewish, and 2% Portuguese. Portuguese? Never heard that one before. Now Ancestry has set me off on a whole new exciting quest to find out who these Portuguese ancestors are. And as I go along, I'm sharing the news with my relatives by adding to my Ancestry family tree. Go to Ancestry.com slash kick today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash kick for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash kick. And now, back to the podcast. So as bad as conditions may be for a refugee coming to the U.S. and maybe being held in these detention centers, it's probably way better than what they would be facing back home. You know, uh, uh, Gabriella, the mother I met with her, with her 56-day-old uh, uh, child on the border in her arms, um, she, she had fled because they couldn't repay a bank loan, and she was the one who was targeted. And in her case, she said, I was pretty sure they wouldn't kill me uh, while I was pregnant, so I hoped we'd be able to repay the loan before my child was due. Uh, we weren't able to, so with one month left, I, I fled, delivered my baby along the three-month journey to the United States. Unbelievable. And so I asked her, uh, now that you you uh, have arrived here on the border during your trip, during your three-month trip, was the family able to repay the loan? She said, no, they weren't. And I said, so what happened? She said, well, because I wasn't there, they killed my uncle. And is this the woman that you brought to uh, the president's State of the Union? No. So this was a, 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 a mother and her, her little two-month-old baby that uh, I met on the border on Father's Day in, in 2018. I was there with, I took a congressional delegation uh, back two weeks after I had been rejected in, in Brownsville from visiting the center. Uh, the, the woman who came uh, to uh, the State of the Union, uh, it was a mother and daughter. Uh, Jacqueline was, it was her 12th birthday, and her mother, Albertina. Uh, and uh, in, in that case, they were fleeing gang-inspired domestic violence where she had been essentially co-opted into a, a gang or, or a very difficult, uh, if you will, domestic violence situation. Often there's a, often you're, it's hard to draw the line between the gang role and the domestic violence. She was sure her, her daughter, as she came of age, uh, would be forced into being a, a sex uh, slave for a, a gang. And as that threat grew greater, she fled uh, to protect her daughter. And they were separated at the border, spent two months apart. Uh, I asked her daughter if she had anything to say to President Trump. What would she say? And she said, I would tell him to uh, end this most cruel law. She called child separate this most cruel law. I thought an appropriate term to use. Yeah. I, it was really uplifting, this uh, this 12-year-old. She was just full of life. She was so excited about her life of ahead of her. Uh, she and her mother are applying for asylum. It's not clear that they will get asylum because the the president's team has now said that fleeing for your life, even if the local gang is the government of your community, 
they will not accept that as, as grounds for asylum. And it's it's been traditional that domestic violence and gang activity were protected groups. So she they may well be sent back. Wow. But but she was extraordinary. I mean, she left behind the mother Albertina, she left behind two little boys. She she had to make the type of terrible choice for any parent to flee with one child. She left her other two children with her sister. And President Trump has also talked about ending the U.S. strategy for Central America, which is a program created by President Obama that sort of coupled USAID and the Northern Triangle with certain benchmarks for reform and combating corruption. If we end this, I have to think that that's only going to make the crisis on the border even worse. Yes, the the I went with uh, Senator Carper, uh, Tom Carper of Delaware, down uh, to t- to review those programs with the the governments and the groups that benefit from the program, and I was struck by how modest our aid is. Initially, it was a, a little bit more than seven hundred million dollars a year to the three countries. But because of all the caveats on it and so forth, it was last year it was a couple hundred million dollars if if that money ever actually made it through the obstacles set up by the administration. Compare that to remittances. Remittances from, from country men and women living in the United States were last year $17 billion to those three countries. And so this couple hundred million dollars that is so slow to be distributed, it's split between in each country uh, about three dozen programs. And so it, it does good things and we work hard to audit it and make sure that it doesn't fall prey to the corruption that is so rampant where often uh, programs that sound good on the surface are, are actually never executed and people pocket the money. So we really work hard to make sure that, that, that good work is done with this. But it's going to take more investment, not less. The institutions are fragile in the face of the drug cartels and the street gangs. It's going to take a lot more to change that situation. Uh, cutting off that modest amount of, of money isn't going to help mm-hmm. at all. And I don't know what kind of relationship you have with William Barr, but I know that you served in the Senate with Jeff Sessions and even worked together on bipartisan legislation. At any point, did you ever reach out to him when he was AG and try to discuss immigration policy with him directly? I did. I was so deeply disturbed by the child separation strategy and the blockade at the border, leaving people stranded across the border and then treating them so horrifically when they did come across the border, the cold holding cells, the lights on all at night, uh, not providing basic medical care for children, children dying under the care of this administration, which did not happen previously. And so uh, I called him up and, and said, I'd just like to have a heart-to-heart talk with him about, about this situation and uh, what it really looked like, uh, invite him to go down there with me to take a, a, a look. And um, I must say he stuck very closely to the talking points that had been in place from the start of the administration that, no, 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 uh, this wasn't hurting kids. Uh, this was uh, uh, helping by deterring people from coming. Of course, as the numbers mounted, it became clear it doesn't deter people from coming because people don't – if they're, you're in a village when somebody's going to kill you come the weekend, your thought is not the complexities of how you'll be treated when you come to the border in the United yeah. States. It doesn't work as, as a, a, quote, deterrence. Yeah. What it does do is violate basic human rights. Instead of the United States being a leader in the world on human rights, uh, we – 
proceed to set a horrific example. And the rest of the world is going, what happened to the United States? Imagine if another country stranded migrants across the border under horrific circumstances. Imagine if they came to ports of entry and were rejected. Uh, Imagine if in another country, when they were allowed in, they were mistreated in in holding cells, uh, freezing cold holding cells. Imagine they didn't get medical care or appropriate uh, nutrition or hygiene. Imagine that they were sent to for-profit prisons, paid $750 a day uh, in a situation where it was a corrupt, um, non, uh, what do you call it, um, non-competition contract. It was uh, no awarded without any competition yeah. to an insider, uh, basically John Kelly's organization after he left the administration. Uh, imagine that they kept the kids locked up rather than moving them into uh, sponsored homes when the sponsor was ready and able and had already been vetted. We'd go, what happened to that country? Well, this, wow. this is our country doing this. At every stage, uh, make inflicting deep trauma on children that will, in many cases, last a lifetime. Wow. So we have to end it. Wow. So you're saying that for these companies or organizations that are running these facilities, there's actually a perverse incentive for them to keep children there. Yes. So if you compare uh, two influx facilities, one was Tornillo, run by a nonprofit, BCFS, and one is Homestead in Florida, run by this um, uh, corporation, Caliburn, uh, that uh, has uh, John Kelly as a paid board member. The difference is large. The nonprofit went out and hired every possible caseworker they could to help set up uh, the sponsored uh, homes so that the children would be in school, homes, and playgrounds, not behind barbed wire. Homestead, totally different thing. They made minimal effort because they were making so much money off locking these kids up. We have to end the the financial incentive to lock up children. And by the way, the uh, homestead was really in violation of, of the core Flores Settlement Agreement, which says you don't lock up children uh, in a, this setting for more than three days. Uh, five days if they were intercepted in a rural area or up to 20 days during a period of high influx. Instead, the the children there were there an average of two months, and many of them were coming there from another facility where they'd already been locked up for a month. Uh, So um, just the very perverse incentives uh, to uh, basically traumatize children rather than assist them. What what is the maximum length of time that you're aware of that a child was separated from its parents? Well, the maximum is uh, still going on because there were parents deported while the children were held here that that have never been found because records and contacts weren't weren't established. Uh, The, um, yeah, it's... That's horrific. The administration did not want to be engaged in reunifying children. When the courts ordered them to do it, they tried to dump it off on the... Uh, nonprofits and say, let the nonprofits do it. And the, and the judge in that case was absolutely disgusted. And, and um, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, you created this situation, you have a responsibility yeah. to fix it. And when he, when the judge set different timelines, uh, the timelines were for uh, 14 days or something like that for children under five and then a longer period of time for children between 5 and 17. And 
the administration didn't come close to, to meeting those. And in some cases, they just simply couldn't find the parents. So as of this interview, there are probably still families who haven't been reunited. That's correct. I mean, one has to wonder what kind of psychological ramifications this type of thing has on children. You know, I was uh, I took a congressional delegation down uh, to Port Isabel, where a group of mothers were locked up whose children had been taken away, and we were allowed to talk to them. We in the um, in the in the little uh, church facility that they had at the prison, Port Isabel Prison. And we re- rearranged the benches into a circle, and there were about 10 to 12 women, and a number of them were just uh, crying and almost wailing as, as we met, because just to talk about the situation of where were their kids, one woman said, you know, um, my child has medical issues, and they didn't even, I kept yelling about th- that, and they just took him away and didn't take any notes, and um, I don't know what happened to him or whether what's happened to him because he didn't get the medicine that he he needed. And another woman said, I have no idea where my child is. I'm guessing maybe New York, but I don't even know where I am in the United States. I don't know where New York is, and I haven't been able to, to reach or talk to a child. That was another thing, that, by the way. The administration kept saying it was easy to connect the parents and the children because the database had it all in it. That was an absolute lie. They had not prepared the database. It's why it was so hard to reunify children because when they took them away from the parents, they put them in the database as unaccompanied children. And so even though they were accompanied, they were no longer accompanied in the database. And and so a, a cabinet member after cabinet member kept saying, well, I can snap my fingers and in moments connect a child and, and parent. And it turned out that was simply completely untrue. And uh, there was a, another woman who in that group who said, you know, I have been told my choices are to be either immediately deported or locked up here for a very long time and back ne- maybe never get out. And so I'm trying to figure out if my sister can adopt my child because if I take my child back, my child will probably face death. I can't do that. And so I have to find another family for my child. I mean, very, very intense, intense situations. Now, President Trump eventually caved public pressure on family separations, and his solution was these family internment camps where the children would be housed with the parents. You've opposed that as well. And I guess my question to you is, if you don't want the families being separated and you don't want the kids growing up with their parents in these internment camps, what would you do? Yes, and one thing I'd like to clarify, because uh, the president held a press conference and said he was ending family separation, but he didn't actually end it. The courts had already ended it. Uh, And I say end it, they closed the front door. The administration is still separating kids from their parents through the back door. If, for example, a parent has a DUI or some other traffic violation or a previous marijuana uh, violation, they are taking parents away from children. They shouldn't take parents from children under any situation that a parent wouldn't be taken away from a child in the United States. So they are still doing it, which uh, they're just – that's just – horrific. But it was the court that closed the front door, not not the president. He held a okay. press conference and he said, oh, Melania's talked, talked with me. My daughter's talked with me. So I'm ending it. He did not end it. It was ended by the courts. And in what his executive order said on that occasion, it said, we want to lock up children and the parents indefinitely for the duration of their application for asylum, which could be many years. So you're talking about World War II, Japanese-American-style internment camps, 
Child experts have testified that imprisonment does all kinds of horrific damage to children. And so this also is unacceptable. And to your point, what is the alternative? The alternative is the Family Case Management Program. This program was in place. It was audited twice by the Inspector General of Homeland Security. It uh, reported that uh, 99 point something, more than 99% of the time, uh, families showed up for their check-ins and for their hearings. Really? So that is about as perfect as you can ever get. It turns out that if a case manager has all your contacts and is talking to you continuously about how the process works and when the hearing will be held and how to get a bus ticket to go there, people show up. So the whole argument behind the president's catch and release that people will disappear and not appear for their hearings is false. It is another big lie. And what did the administration do in June of 2017? They shut down this hugely successful program. They wanted to create a, a fiction that people don't show up, so they shut down the program that actually worked. And so what would I do? Reestablish the family case management program. It's something to understand that if um, a family is here in the U.S. and they win their asylum hearing, well, then it's important that we treated them very well. And if they lose their asylum hearing, it's important that we treated them very well. We should treat them the way we would like our family members to be treated if they were fleeing persecution. Yeah. Well, Senator, I appreciate your looking into this issue for us. Again, the book is called America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families. Senator Jeff Merkley, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me on, Ben, and for paying attention to this issue. The The president's tweets dominate the news every single day, and, and it's easy for us to forget there are massive, big problems in America, uh, from health care and housing to jobs and education and to human rights that we must continue to focus on. Absolutely. Well, Senator Merkley, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Senator Jeff Merkley for coming on the show. Order America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And follow Senator Merkley on Twitter at at SenJeffMerkley. Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. They've combined DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. You can even trace your ancestors' journeys over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. I tried Ancestry DNA. The kit only took five minutes to finish and pop in the mail, but it opened up a whole world of possibilities for me. I learned things I never knew about myself, like I have ancestors from places like Russia and Portugal, and now it's set me off on a whole new adventure of trying to find out who those relations were. And as I go along, I can share my findings with my relatives and friends by adding leaves to my Ancestry family tree. Go to Ancestry.com kick today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com kick for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com kick. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. 
For more fun stuff, visit kickassnews.com. And I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.